Welcome to the Reflective Teaching in a Digital Age podcast series. In these conversations, we discuss technology-inspired changes in STEM education. The title of today's episode is Using the System Architecture Function and Outcome Framework to Teach Systems Thinking and Engineering. Nicole and I will talk with Dr. Rhea Lavi, who is a lecturer and a curriculum designer with a new engineering education transformation undergraduate program in the School of Engineering at Massachusetts Institute of Technology, where he leads the integration of 21st century skills in the program curriculum. His research interests in STEM higher education involve the fostering and assessment of systems thinking and creative thinking within the context of complex problem solving. Thank you so much for agreeing to chat with us today. Rare, and I think it's probably will be our first discussion in this podcast series about teaching approaches to complex problem solving. And it would be also very interesting to learn about your framework for the development of system thinking suitable for early years undergraduate engineering students. But before we get to all of these topics, it would be great if you could share with our audience some information about your research background and also your current work interests. Sure, thank you so much for having me first. Uh, very happy to be here and talk to you about my work. So I'd actually started with neuroscience, believe it or not. My bachelor's degree was in the neuroscience track from Tel Aviv University. And I have a dual award. I have two degrees, one in biology and one in psychology. And as I was taking on the work experience, working in the lab, I realized that I did not actually want to make a career out of neuroscience. Mm. So I ended up taking a rather long break in between coming back to academia and after my first degree, where I joined a biotech startup. And I was doing that for four and a half years. And the reason I mentioned that before I get right to the academic background is because I feel like that was my biggest learning experience, um, which actually helped me to see where the gaps are when it comes to complex problem solving for what I call innovation dependent low resource teams. So not not everyone has the kind of uh, access to expertise or the kind of budgets that big companies or big agencies have. Uh, for example, early stage startups or small research teams in academia or NGOs. And that's that was the point when I first started realizing that there needs to be some kind of structured approaches or structured methods and tools for how to approach complex problem solving uh, for people who don't have the expertise or the time or the budget to uh, invest as much as the bigger companies can invest or the bigger institutions can invest. So that's kind of where it came from. And actually, following conversation with my mother, uh, who was a high school teacher, high school biology teacher, I come from a long line of teachers. So I guess the youth rebellion had ended at that point. And uh, following conversation with her, I decided that that yes, actually education and academia would suit me as a field because I'm very much interested in people and I'm very much interested in systems. Uh, That was actually what I understood. And I I like to try and understand how people think and I like to walk people through their problems, walk them through the thought process of trying to solve a problem. Uh, That's something that I've always enjoyed doing, even when I was uh, in elementary school. I enjoyed helping other kids with their homework. Uh, and I knew how to do it. I had the intuition for not telling them the answer, but mm. helping them to get to the answer. I, I kind of already understood that, I think, at a young age. So I think that's why I ended up in educational research, really, um, and doing what I'm doing specifically. My master's uh, in education, uh, I was in the curriculum development track in Barilan University, also in Israel. And my thesis was about the assessment of scientific creativity, specifically middle schoolers, and checking to see whether the teachers are good at assessing their own students' creativity and how do the teachers perceive creativity? Mm. Uh, What kind of, how would they define it? So that was actually my master's degree. So I began my exploration in problem solving through the lens of creativity or specifically mm-hmm. scientific creativity. Um, I then worked in a behavioral research institute for almost a year because I wanted to get more experience with assessment and with creating tests to 
assess thinking skills. So I was doing that for almost a year. Meanwhile, I was looking around for PhDs. I was being quite selective about the kind of advisor I wanted to work with. And I was very fortunate. I, I waited until she got back from her sabbatical um, and eventually was accepted to a PhD in the Faculty of Education in Science and Technology at the Technion mm-hmm. with Professor Judy Dory, who later became mm-hmm. the dean of that faculty as, as I was doing my PhD. And uh, she is an expert in, uh, in many things, uh, but one of which, which was very central to my professional and academic development was metacognition. So the concept of thinking about thinking, the concept of self-reflection, the concept of learning how to learn, a uh, very crucial, I think, uh, thing, uh, thing to teach and to learn uh, in our field. And through her, I met Professor Dov Dory, who is a systems engineer by training, and actually invented a conceptual modeling methodology, which is called object process methodology, that I had learned and started using and started teaching myself. And eventually I came to the study of systems thinking and the assessment of systems thinking with this tool in mind. So my very first research foray into systems thinking was actually taking this conceptual modeling language and doing a literature review of how systems thinking is being assessed in science education and engineering education and coming up with a rubric for assessing systems thinking based on these conceptual models. So that was pretty advanced and more suitable for the later year undergraduates who were learning systems engineering or industrial engineering, more suitable for graduate students who were studying this methodology, more suitable for for professionals. So people who are dedicated to understanding systems and working with systems and doing conceptual modeling. But as I came to MIT, I had to actually teach a first-year course. And the first-year course was meant to focus on what we call the ways of thinking in our program. And there I had a really, really tough job of taking everything that I had done so far in how to teach systems thinking, how to assess systems thinking, and distill it into a few weeks for first-year students who haven't gained the discipline yet. So I think that's kind of in a nutshell my uh, story, my foray into uh, problem solving and systems thinking and so on. Mm-hmm. And they, I'll, I'll be able to talk a little bit more about what I actually mean when I say problem solving or systems thinking. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of my short narrative. Thank you, Ria. Um, so, yeah, could you go into talking about problem solving and systems thinking, contextualize, I suppose, uh, broadly, and if, then if you want to contextualize it within a first-year engineering program, what does that look like? Absolutely. So for me, the way I approach it, and a few references that I would like to give, I guess, at the end of this uh, interview or, or send to you mm-hmm. for your uh, listeners that I think are worth checking out in this regard, because I was very much informed by those references in my understanding of what are complex problems and so forth. So I'll start by saying... There are two terms that are often used, and sometimes they're conflated, but and sometimes people use them differently. So one is ill-defined problems or ill-structured problems, and another one is complex problems. So generally speaking, an ill-defined or an ill-structured problem, and I will give a few examples soon, uh, actually, for my course, but generally speaking, an ill-structured problem is one where we're not exactly sure what the problem is. We actually need to explore the problem and define the problem space first. We don't know all the rules. We are not quite sure what a good solution looks like. It's something that we have to research and negotiate as a team. What are the success criteria? And the way there is not so clear. So just to give an example of a a very well-structured problem, a game of chess is a very well-structured problem because we know where everyone starts, where the pieces are on the board. We know what a good result looks like for us. We know a checkmate or or the, the other player resigning, and we know what the rules are. We know exactly what the rules of the game. That doesn't make it necessarily an easy problem, right? Because we could be playing, I'm not uh, involving right now artificial intelligence or anything like that. I'm just mm-hmm. talking about a standard game of chess. Uh, if we're playing against someone like Garry Kasparov, uh, you know, a grandmaster uh, multiple times, that's not going to be an easy problem. But it's still a well-structured problem because we know the starting point, we know the end point that we want to get to, and we know what the rules are. 
An ill-structured problem is very different to that. So the most ill-structured of problems are what we would call dilemmas. So you can think of anything that is what's called a wedge issue uh, in American politics or any other country where big chunks of the public are divided, for example. How do you solve for that? Uh, how do you get a, a bill passed through Congress? Things of that sort. So those are at the complete other end where not only is it difficult to exactly understand what the problem is, it's very it's something that we actually need to negotiate before we can move forward. What a good solution looks like is something that we as a team have to agree. So engineers ultimately deal in the real life, they deal a lot with ill-structured problems, a design problem, which is something that not only engineers deal with. So a design problem in my in my definition is very broad. It could be designing a new curriculum or a new course or designing a business model or designing a product or designing a service. But it certainly also applies to designing a technology system. It's very often an ill-structured kind of problem, especially when we set it in the real world. Because in the real world, we're not in a lab. We have all kinds of um, external or even internal uh, demands and requirements. So it's not just about the performance of the system. It's also about how much, what would be the cost of manufacturing it. It's also about adhering to certain regulations and safety uh, and so on. So I can give, a, so that's an ill-defined problem. Now, a complex problem, adding the complexity element means that it's not only that we are not sure exactly what the starting point is and what a good solution looks like and there are multiple solutions and we're not quite sure how to get there yet, and it's always an iterative process. That's the thing about the design problem. But with complexity, or they're sometimes also called wicked problems, there's another element, which is that if we consider the world outside of the immediate problem space, then we, we start to see that our own, prob our own solution or our process of solving the problem may change the environment which will change a factor in our own in our own process. So I'm going to give an example from a course that I'm teaching right now. I'm teaching a course um, about applying ways of thinking to climate and sustainability challenges. And we are taking a very specific problem from the Ulaanbaatar project. Ulaanbaatar is the capital of Mongolia. And at MIT, the Ulaanbaatar project has been going on for about five or six years. Um, it's headed by Professor Mike Short uh, with uh, colleagues in the uh, University, National University of Mongolia. And this project is about decarbonizing the capital of Mongolia. And the reason why is that Ulaanbaatar is the coldest as well as the most polluted capital city in the world. It's essentially sitting in some kind of a valley and uh, it has over a million people. And when it's winter there, and it gets very, very cold in the winter, the people use coal to heat up their houses. And coal is, of course, very polluting. And at the same time, it's surrounded by mountains, which means that the smog just stays. And that causes, as you can imagine, a lot of problems. In my course with my students, which is for first and second year students, we just take one challenge from there. Uh, Professor Short asked me to tackle this challenge with my students, and I agreed. And the challenge is, to take a molten salt brick, which is the, supposed to be the substitute for coal. So this is made out of a, some kind of a salt that's encased in a stainless steel brick. It, it weighs about uh, 50 or 60 pounds, and it's heated up to, uh, forgive me for using Celsius, I still haven't figured out Fahrenheit, but about 400 degrees Celsius, uh, which is four times boiling water, like it's extremely hot. So you have to take this quite heavy, very hot brick and you have to transport it from the truck into the stove of the residents who live in a tent-like structure, which is called a ger. Now, I won't belabor all the details and all the difficulties, but there's uneven terrain. Uh, the fences are usually locked. There are guard dogs uh, within the perimeter. Uh, there are all kinds of complications when you're carrying something very heavy and very hot and so on, right? And there's children inside. And so there's a lot of complications there. So that's an ill-defined problem. Why is it an ill-defined problem? Because first we need to identify, okay, so we have to take this brick and move it and so forth. But 
how many bricks are we talking about? How many times a day? How much exactly is the brick going to weigh? Because there are other things happening in parallel on the Ulaanbaatar project. Uh, the brick size may still change. So we need to think about that as we're designing a solution, that the size of the brick, which is central to our solution that we need to come up with, may increase and the weight may increase. There's all these details that some of them we can research and some of them we have to find kind of a range or speculate. Now, what does a good solution looks like? That also depends. Are we looking at cost? Are we looking at trying to get to as many residents as possible? What about safety? Uh, and so on and so forth. So what exactly does a good solution look like? Well, we have to do our research and agree as a team and then look at our different ideas and compare them. It's There is no textbook formula like in the game of chess. Game of chess, we know what a good solution is. It's checkmate or the other player resigning, right? And how to get there, that's essentially what I'm teaching my students. How do you identify and classify a problem? Then how do you research it? How do you conceptualize it? How do you define it as a team so you can move forward? How do you come up with ideas? How do you think outside the box? Take a different perspective. How do you then refine your ideas? How do you then evaluate them and compare them and refine them? And then how do you prototype and test them? And on top of that, understanding that it's all really an iterative process. It's never really linear because we're learning the problem as we are trying to solve it. That's really a feature of an ill-defined problem. Whereas with chess, we have all the rules and we can train beforehand. We can look at past games, right? There's all kinds of things we can do. But design problems are different. So now, uh, to end my example, I'm going to give the complexity element, which in this course I'm not adding because it's just too much for one semester and for first and second year students. Here's another complexity element. And we actually had a uh, short chat about this in our last lesson because one of the students brought it up. I had to respond. If we do this and our solution is successful, what happens to all the people in Ulaanbaatar who work in the coal industry, work in importing coal, distributing coal? What happens to the price of coal as the demand for coal goes down? So the price of coal would go down, which means some people might go back to coal because our solution may not be as cost effective anymore. And a lot of people may lose their jobs or stand to lose their jobs, which means they may be resistant to our solution. That's where you add complexity because you begin to understand that there are feedback loops, system dynamics, cause and effect loops, which is uh, Forrester's idea from the 1960s. So that's where complexity comes in. But in my way of teaching, I first start off with the idea of ill-defined problems before I teach the complexity, because the complexity is is complex. It's something that you can only add, I think, once you start with the fundamentals. So to do with systems thinking specifically, when I say systems thinking, I mean it as a short for systems approach to problem solving. I view systems thinking as a tool or a cognitive approach that you can and should apply to certain stages in your problem solving, specifically when you are conceptualizing and defining your problem and when you are conceptualizing your solution, so when you're doing system architecting. And for that, I use, uh, for example, as I've said, object process methodology. That's a tool that I do teach my students in the course. We actually create a conceptual model, a hierarchical conceptual model of the challenge showing how the people are affected by it, what happens on the lower levels, all the different obstacles that I told you about before, uh, taking the systems approach, understanding how the different parts interrelate. So from here, I can, of course, segue into the framework, if you like. Yes, I think that would be very useful. Um, and also, like you mentioned before, we could have some references maybe added at the end, right, if somebody's interested to try uh, to read about the framework and use it in their uh, teaching as well. Absolutely. I'll be happy mm -hmm. to do that um, and send you uh, the full list. Uh, and I guess you could put it in the timestamps or in the description below. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So as I said already, with the systems uh, thinking, I, again, view it as a tool. So with this framework, you can use it in various ways. So 
you can view a problem or a challenge as a system. That's one thing you can do. Or you can view, of course, the solution you're developing as a system. So the usual way, the, the first way that I introduce this framework, and it doesn't actually matter whether this is instructors or students or what year they're in, in the minimal version, if I only have 50 minutes or an hour, then what I do is I describe the framework, I give a worked example, and then I give a team assignment, which takes about 25 minutes, followed by very short presentations and a discussion and some kind of a feedback form at the end, because I always like to get people's opinions on what I'm doing. And the framework, again, is meant for first year engineering education or complete novices. It's meant as an introduction to systems thinking for people who never heard of the term. And by the way, I never heard the term systems thinking until I started my PhD. So my students already have an advantage on me. So this, the framework that I have developed and that I use is uh, called SAFO, S-A-F-O. That stands for System Architecture Function Outcome. I developed it in response to a need, which was to create a ways of thinking class for first year students, first year, first semester students, uh, as COVID hit and we moved to remote teaching. So this was for a fully virtual class. So I've been developing it since. I actually submitted the first empirical paper with statistical analysis about that class. I submitted it about six weeks ago uh, to one of the education journals. So again, the framework is system architecture function outcome. And the idea is a fundamental basis introduction to systems thinking, which is not, which is not too limited, which is not too constrained, uh, just to the technological system itself. So architecture, is the mechanics, the hardware, and the software of the technological system. So, of course, we have physical parts, or we can also have digital parts as well. And this applies to any technological system. It can be a, a car, it can be a nuclear power plant, it can be a, a smartphone application, um, you name it. So that's the architecture. And the architecture is made up of structure and behavior, which is, uh, I think, pretty familiar to a lot of engineering educators who would be uh, listening to this. And the idea here is to pick the key parts of the system, not every single component, pick the key parts of the system and the interactions between them. And either through teamwork or discussion, figure out what those are. So the idea of this framework, again, is to give an overview of the system, is not to exhaustively analyze the system. And that's why it's quite good also if we don't have much time, let's say we only have one class to teach this, we can still do something. So what I do is I present this framework um, and then, of course, I give a worked example. So that's in terms of the architecture. Then we move on to the function. The idea of the function is that we treat the technological system as one object or one entity. And we look at what other systems is it interacting with. So if we look at the car, for example, the car as an entity interacts, I could say, with two other systems. One is the human driver, which provides the input, the mechanical commands. And the other one, uh, the output, is to another system, which we could call the road network, just to simplify it. And again, as I said already, there is much more to it, and there are much higher levels and more complex levels we could go into. And you can certainly say there are more than just two systems that the car interacts with. But the idea of this framework is to get the students thinking in this way which is quite rare. Uh, systems thinking is not something that we often encounter in K-12 education, at least not formally or explicitly. And the next level is the outcome. And quite often in engineering education, even in the undergraduate level, we tend to conflate between function and outcome. So when you ask somebody, what does a car do? Uh, so some people say, well, we can use a car to move uh, on roads from one place to another, which is a function. But the question is then why, or what problem does it solve, or what need does it satisfy? And that's where the outcome comes in. So with the outcomes, we're asking things like, what problem, when the system functions properly, what problem is it solving? Who does it solve it for? So who are the key stakeholders? What is the key benefit or the major benefits that it provides? And what are the major detriments that are caused that we can expect? 
So again, if we take the example of a car, and I use it because it's just familiar to everyone, a petrol-driven, uh, a petrol-powered manually driven car. So we can think about the problem that a car solves as, for example, that uh, commuting to work um, when work is far, commuting to work uh, using public transport can be unreliable, it can take a very long time, it can be inconvenient. We can think of that as a problem. So the key stakeholders in this case would be people who need to commute to work, uh, you know, working age adults. The key benefit, therefore, is that the car, when it functions properly, allows us to commute to work quickly, efficiently, and conveniently. But there are, there's also a detriment to a car, which is it causes air pollution, which then leads to all kinds of adverse effects on health, especially for people who live in cities. So I've now essentially described how to map this SAFO framework to a specific technological system, which is a manually driven uh, petrol powered car. So you have the key parts, say the steering wheel, the combustion engine, the wheel axles, you know, we can name a couple more. You have the interactions between them, steering and spinning, transmitting, etc. Then you have the function, which I've described. So the function is that it's, it's given uh, commands by a human driver and it drives across the road network for one, uh, one location to another. And then as I explained, we have the outcome where we talk about the problem, the stakeholders, the benefit and the detriment. And this is after I go through this worked example of a car and maybe another one, we actually do the team assignment. And there what I do is I, I use Google Forms. I find them very easy. Um, also for research purposes, it's very good because you can record your data. And I give each team five systems to choose from and I make them very different to each other. So we have something like a train, uh, instant messaging platform, uh, an e-reader, a nuclear power plant, you know, uh, give them really a wide range. And then I just ask them to map it to the framework. So can you name four or five key parts? Can you name four or five interactions between them? Can you name the input system, the output system, and so on? The last two questions are the really interesting ones because all the other questions are about describing the system. That's how we start off. That's a very basic level of systems thinking understanding architecture, understanding function, understanding outcome. The next level up is understanding the relationship between those things and how they affect each other. So the next two questions are, take the benefit that you mentioned and find a way to improve it by changing a part of your system, changing one part of the architecture and explain to me how changing this part is going to change the interactions with the other parts and the function that you've described, and as a result of that, the benefit. And also do the same for the detriment. So if we take a car, how can you make the commute more convenient or quicker or more efficient? And with regards to the detriment, the pollution, how can you lower the, reduce the pollution of the car? And the idea of this exercise is not that the students need to be experts on how a car engine works. So they don't need to actually understand how to implement their change, but they could say something like, for example, adding a filter uh, to the exhaust pipe, just as an example. They don't have to say what the filter is made out of or, or anything like that. Just give an idea. And then those are the two questions that I ask them to present after they're done with their 30-minute assignment. The descriptions I can look into afterwards. But for the discussion in the class, I really want to talk about this relationship between the architecture and the function and the outcome. And we can have a very lively discussion, especially if everyone in the class is mapping the same system. Everyone comes up with different ideas and different types of benefits and different types of detriments. So I found that to be a very useful activity if all you have is just one hour. And that to me would be the very fundamentals of teaching systems thinking to somebody who just got out of high school. Thank you so much. So you mentioned that this class in particular you did it completely online? Are you doing yes. a face-to-face -face version of it now, or are you maintaining this class strictly online now? So this class, which is SP248, Neat Ways of Thinking, it's a first-year discovery class at MIT. At MIT, we have a, a class of classes called first-year discovery classes, which are one to three units, so they're not very long. 
and they're not part of the major or full degree that the students are doing, but they need to accumulate a number of credits or a number of units with these classes. So it's actually a pass-fail class. I should mention that. It's not a graded class. The Olin Batur class that I mentioned is a graded class, and it's six units. So the idea with this class is that we want to expose the students to the NEAT program, which I haven't mentioned yet. I'm actually employed by the NEAT program as lecturer and curriculum designer. NEAT program, New Engineering Education Transformation, is a three-year undergraduate program. Students join in their sophomore year and end in their senior year, and they choose uh, to join one of the threads, as we call them. A thread is an interdisciplinary area. So we have autonomous machines, living machines, and climate and sustainability. So the first year discovery class that I teach is not for NEAT students because NEAT students join in their sophomore year. But the idea is that we want to expose the different threads of NEAT to them. So every two weeks, I have a different co-instructor from a different part of the program join me and we tackle a different case study with the students. So every two weeks, we switch a case study and we switch a way of thinking. And systems thinking happens to be the only one that goes across four weeks and two different case studies. So the first one has to do with microfluidic devices, uh, which are things that you can hold with your with two fingers, but it's a technological system, and it's used for um, drug discovery, drug development, things of that sort. And for the second section, the case studies actually has to do with renewable energy. So we compare a coal-fired plant to a nuclear power plant to a wind farm to a solar farm. And for those entire four weeks, we study those systems through the lens of the SAFO framework. So to answer your question, that class was completely virtual. And I had to create the framework in response to having to teach this class. And it was actually the first time I had ever taught uh, a remote class. Uh, so it was a very big challenge. And I ended up having 54 students which is the largest number of students I've ever had in one class. So you can imagine it was like a, a triple challenge because I had to teach remotely for the first time with 54 students and coming up with this new framework. So that's how it started. But actually, in the last fall, I did teach it in person, which was more challenging than I thought because I had originally designed this class to be virtual. And, and there are some pros, you know, there are pros and cons to teaching virtually. I feel that um, controlling the time in the lesson in some ways is a lot easier when it's, uh, when it's done virtually. Uh, but that perhaps is a different discussion. But since then, I took the, this SAFO framework and I teach it in my six unit class, which is I told you about the challenge that my students are tackling. So they're not two week case studies. It's one real world challenge that we are tackling throughout the entire semester. And we are using the SAFO framework for architecting the solution and for explaining it to people who aren't involved in the project. Once you figure out the architecture of your solution and the function and the outcomes, it becomes a lot easier to explain it to people from different disciplines. It becomes a lot easier to explain it to people who are more business oriented or marketing oriented or people who are more technically oriented. You can pick different uh, aspects whether it's the architecture, the function, or the outcome, and also explain the relationships to people. So it's very helpful in that way. And thirdly, and this is something that I only really started doing uh, at the end of last year, is teaching workshops to instructors, to faculty, with this framework. How do you create assignments using this framework? How do you teach your kind of technological systems to your students using this framework? So I gave with my colleague, Dr. Katrina Baghiati from MIT Open Learning. I uh, gave a workshop, um, a four hour workshop at the IEEE EDUCON conference. And before that, a two day workshop with MIT JWell to over 20 participants. And there are actually two more workshops coming up, uh, which I'm happy to say my um, proposal was accepted for. One is the Future of Engineering Conference at MIT. Uh, which is going to be in July. And another one in June is the ASWE. Uh, had a proposal accepted there. So both of those are going to be for instructors. And finally, I just wanted to say that I've also um, 
I've had less time to do this in the workshops. I only did it in a couple of them. But there is also a rubric for assessing systems thinking based on this assignment, which I just described. So that kind of rounds the circle. We're not mm -hmm. just teaching systems thinking. We're also being able to assess it so that we can identify, oh, you're having difficulty with understanding function. So we can focus on that. Or you're having difficulty with understanding um, the detriment. So we can focus on that. Or you're having difficulty with uh, coming up with improvements for your system, but you're very good at describing it. So that helps with the formative assessment as well. Mm -hmm. Do you find that uh, students have difficulties with some specific aspects of the framework more so than with others? Yes, absolutely. So I'm not sure how many of them are difficulties or how many of them are conditioning because they're used to certain things being more important than others, perhaps. So there is a tendency to focus more on the architecture and the function and less on the outcome sometimes. It's surprisingly difficult, not just with students, by the way, to have people separate, separate what the system does, how it interacts with its environment, how it interacts with other systems on its boundary, to why did we build it? What problem is it solving? What are the benefits to people? Who is affected by it? What are the detriments? Quite often, the word function is used to mean both of those things. Or the outcome is simply ignored when we talk about designing a system or describing a system. Uh, quite Sometimes we just focus on the technology, um, the structure, the behavior, the function, and we kind of forget about what, what I call in my framework outcomes. So that's one thing that I found difficult, but I don't think uh, that I, I found the students uh, sometimes don't respond to, but I, I don't think necessarily that it's a difficult thing to grasp. I think it's because they're not used to looking at systems in this way, uh, because I found that not just with first-year students, as I've said. One thing that is difficult generally are the things that you can't see. So it's much easier to think about structure and describe the structure of a system than the behavior of a system, for example. Because interactions or processes by nature are things that, that are not tangible. They're just the way we perceive the world, but they're not tangible. The only thing really that's tangible are the parts of the system. So it's not very surprising uh, that that's uh, more difficult. And I can actually, this is an interesting uh, story of how ideas develop. I published a paper in 2019 about the assessment of systems thinking uh, STAR, Systems Thinking Assessment Rubric, which I developed with uh, professors Judy and Dov Dory and with Dr. Niva Vengrovitz, based on these conceptual models that I told you about in object process methodology. So this was based on a sample of, I think almost, yeah, almost 100 undergraduate industrial engineering students who were given commercially facing um, popular free to use uh, applications like Facebook, WhatsApp, and so forth. They could choose one of those. And throughout the entire semester, they would create these very elaborate hierarchical conceptual models. And they would submit their first draft in the middle of the semester and then another one at the end, the same system. So they would submit one in the middle of the semester. They would get feedback from us. I was one of the TAs and this was during my PhD. And at the end of the semester, they would send their revised, more expanded, corrected model. And I took those models and based on literature review and so on, I found, uh, I think it was about 10 attributes of systems thinking divided into three aspects, function, structure, and behavior. That's, that was how I did it based on the literature review. And here were the results. We found that all the attribute scores improved from the middle of the semester to the end of the semester, the first version and the second version following feedback. All of them improved except for one, which was the purpose of the system, which is what I spoke about just now is essentially the benefit of the system. But then for other reasons, I called it purpose. The purpose didn't change. The score didn't change significantly. Statistically, there was no difference. But for everything else, there was a difference. Every other attribute of systems thinking that I had synthesized based on the literature review 
into these 10 attributes. All of them improved from the middle of the semester to the end, except for the purpose. And I was wondering why that is. Why is it that the purpose doesn't? And then as I spoke to students and thought about it, I realized that you don't have to be an engineer or analyze a system in order to understand what does Facebook do for me? Or what does WhatsApp do for me? Or what does Waze do for me? And anybody, whether they're an engineer or not, has an equally valid opinion on that question. And in fact, you could argue that somebody who is more into the management science or maybe even humanities might potentially even have a better understanding that someone is sim just a traditional engineering discipline education. And that made me realize that purpose should be taken out or separated from function. That was kind of the first insight that I had because I had based this rubric on a very extensive literature review and reading many books and articles that did more or less conflate the two or simply um, assumed that that's not something that we necessarily need to teach our first year engineering students. So of course, as, as everyone I think listening to this knows, the top employers and educational bodies are very much insistent that systems thinking is important. So I think that means we need to find a way to teach it to our first year students, but we also need to teach it in a way that will allow them to approach it from a real world perspective. Because once they're in an organization working on engineering design problems, at some point or another, they're going to have to consider things that are outside of just the technological system, outside just the architecture and the function. So that's kind of, you know, one of the milestones for me of understanding something that is very simple and that other people have uh, read about and published. I'm not claiming by, by any means that this is a unique insight, but in terms of teaching it to first-year engineering students um, as a domain agnostic way, so somebody who is a novice, somebody who is not yet chosen their major in electrical engineering or mechanical engineering or what have you, as far as I'm aware, there is no framework currently that exists that allows you to kind of pick up and go quite quickly. So I want follow that line of conversation for a second, if you will, thinking about how most first-year engineering courses, they tend to be design-based and teamwork-focused. And so um, as you talked about your framework, I wondered what thoughts you had in practicality of what this could look like in a first-year engineering course that is centered around teamwork and for designing solutions to engineering problems. Absolutely. So uh, firstly, that's outlined in detail in the syllabus of the course that I'm teaching now. Uh, the Ulan Batur project course is very much centered around that. It actually centers around five different ways of thinking, not just systems thinking, because as I said, I view systems thinking as a cognitive approach, which is very useful at certain parts of the problem solving process and arguably in all of them. But since we always have limited time and we need to prioritize, I use it in certain parts. But how do I see it as part of a course? I see it being relevant in two stages. One stage is, is when you are well into the research of your problem and following that, defining your problem. So when you are essentially conceptualizing it, if you treat your problem as a system, then you avoid, you prevent the risk of getting down too much into just breaking down the problem into tiny parts and not looking at the relationships, which is that could be fine if you're dealing with a textbook problem or a PSET. But if you're dealing with an engineering design problem with a real world problem, that's not something you should be doing. At some point, you should be bringing that holistic interrelated perspective into it. So that's one instance where the SAFA framework can be very useful. And another one, which is, I guess, more obvious, is when you are beginning to architect your system. So you've already settled on some kind of a solution. Um, you already have some kind of a concept that you want to go with. And now you want to figure out how this thing is going to be architected. What are, what are the parts? What are the interactions? 
what are the other system on the systems on the boundary that it's going to interact with? How will people be affected by it? Looking into those system uh, or more complex um, effects that uh, we spoke about before. So that's certainly where it can be useful. At the same time, again, I want to point out that the software framework is meant as a basic fundamental introduction to systems thinking. If somebody wants to go beyond what I've just said, then there are other tools and other methods that I do teach still, and they are the ones that I started with, like object process methodology, uh, SysML, uh, system dynamics, cause and effect loops, and so on and so forth, which I also teach, but I, also, I always wait before I teach those, because I do feel that we have to get the fundamentals first of architecture, function, and outcomes, and the relationship between them. Uh, because I feel that that really is the basis of systems thinking. And once we have that basis, we can move forward and work on more complex things. You know, I just have a question about creativity and how that fits in or complements the framework. I think it's interesting when you think about first-year engineering, many instructors and many universities have different experience with that. And, you know, it could range from sort of this chaotic teamwork and let students figure out something to that. It can go to more a different extreme of, you know, being too prescriptive about what they should do, how they interact. So I guess my question is, how does the creativity feed into that? That's well, that's a, a hot topic for debate. And actually, uh, I made a LinkedIn post about in my SP248 class, one of the later classes towards the end, I dedicate to one team focuses on analytical thinking, the other one creative, the other one systems. They all take the same challenge. So using the SAFA framework, you actually start from the outcomes that you want to achieve and you work your way down. You get feedback and you go back. It's an iterative process. So is that creative? Arguably it is. Arguably it is a creative approach to problem solving, especially if it's new to the person. I view creative thinking as lateral thinking, meaning you're pulling from other domains or you're changing your perspective on the problem in some way. So if we imagine our understanding of the problem as a web of concepts, that's the metaphor I like to use, you can take out a concept, you can reverse certain relationships between concepts, you can bring a concept from another domain and connect it to concepts. So to me, that's creative thinking. Systems thinking is more as I described before, which is this holistic understanding of how the different parts relate with each other. That's not to say it's, it's not creative. If you define creativity as thinking in an original way about something and coming up with a useful idea. It, so you can come up with creative ideas using systems thinking. But um, just for sake of, uh, I guess, for, just for sake of pedagogical ease, I, I separate analytical thinking, which is decomposing a problem into simpler problems and solving them one by one, to creative thinking, which is changing your perspective on the problem in some way, to systems thinking, which is holistic thinking about the problem. Um, so I would recommend definitely just checking out, I actually wrote a LinkedIn article exactly about this, which gives an example of how three student teams approached exactly the same problems I gave them in the same lesson with these three different ways of thinking and then what they came up with and the process they went through. I, I think it was very interesting. Now, how defined should the problem be? So when we teach our students. So this goes back to the well-structured versus ill-structured thing, right? It is a balance, it's difficult, it depends on, it really depends on how many students you have, how much mentoring and direction you can give them, and uh, how much expertise do you have as a facilitator? Because if your students are working through an ill-defined problem, you don't have all the information about the problem you might not even have more information than they do necessarily. So you need to be very good at facilitating that process, which requires knowledge and expertise in facilitating ill-structured problem solving. So depending on whether you have that or not, whether your co-instructors have that or not, and depending on the number of students you have and what year they're in, you would need to decide what to do. I generally try and find a balance so that I give them a selection of problems. I don't just 
open it up completely and say, like with my course, um, here's the Ulan Batur project, which is a five, six year project that involves dozens of people. Read up about the project. Here are some links and come back to me with a problem you want to solve. So I would not do that with first and second year students. What I did do, I worked with students in our program, in the NEET program, to create challenge reports. Each report was two pages about one challenge in the Ulaanbaatar project with references and so on. I gave that to my students and I said, choose one. Choose one of those challenges. So they already essentially have 70% of the research done for them. They still needed to spend the first two weeks doing more research, adding more stuff to the challenge report. But the identification stage and most of the research stage of solving an engineering design problem or solving an ill-defined problem was already done for them before the class. So in a way, that makes the problem more well-structured. They still have to figure out how to define the problem, agree on it as a team. They still have to figure out what success criteria is, what a good solution would look like, how are we going to judge what a good solution is. They still need to come up with ideas. They still need to prototype and test. So there's plenty of work for them to do. But I would say certainly that giving students a selection to choose from, of problems to choose from, and doing some of the research to start them off for understanding the problem is, I would say it's crucial if you're teaching first year students uh, at the minimum. If you want to have it even more well-defined, then the only thing that, uh, it depends what you want to teach them, but I think if you want to teach approaches to ill-defined problem solving, you have to at least leave the ideation part open. You can't just give them the ideas and, and ask them to just elaborate on them. Um, you have to let them come up with some of the initial ideas. Now, you may not have the time or the capacity or the budget to have them actually develop their ideas or prototype their ideas, but you could at least have them um, do some kind of an initial design uh, discussion, evaluation, design review, and then have them present those designs. So that would be at a minimum, I would say. The minimum would be that you would give them the problem or that you would give them a selection, but you would walk them through the ideation and the refinement and then the evaluation and comparison and selection process. And finally, the presentation of the ideas. Thank you, Rhea. So in the interest of time, I had just one question I wanted to ask you. What does assessment look like in this kind of setting? Sure. So there are two kinds of items in the basic assignment that I give. As I've explained, one of them is just about describing the system. So what are the key parts, key interactions, input system, output system? Uh, problem, key stakeholders, benefit, detriment. So with those, I'm looking for clarity, I'm looking for correctness, and I'm looking for um, what I call uh, essentiality. So what does that mean? I want the answers to be clear. I want to understand to be, them to be understandable. They need to be correct. So if they're telling me that a car has certain parts, they're not giving me parts that don't exist in a car. And the essentiality means since the framework is about the essence of the system and we're not looking at every small detail, the parts they've given me, the interactions they've given me, the input system, the out system, have they picked out things that are really major and crucial to the system or have they, you know, mentioned like the backseat of the car or something like that? And I just give a score to each, uh, in each one of those description items, I give a score of zero, one or two to each one of those three criteria. So each item can receive any score between zero and six. And again, this is formative assessment. It's not about, it's not affecting their grade. It's for me to know where are they having difficulties and where they could use more help. Now that's for the descriptive. And as I mentioned, we have two uh, prescriptive or design items. And for those, I use a different criteria. For those, I use comprehensiveness, viability, and effectiveness. And this is a bit more difficult because it means that you need to give them a system that you can actually judge their ideas for or have someone as, a, as an expert on the, on the system. But comprehensiveness means when they're giving me the idea of how to 
increase a benefit or reduce a detriment by changing a part, have they given me a comprehensive account of how this will change the interaction, how this will change the function with the various systems that our systems interacting with, and how this will affect the outcome, the stakeholders and so forth. So have they looked into the various aspects in the SAFO framework when providing their answer? And again, these are the two questions that I want them to present in class. These are the questions that I want us to discuss. The other ones I can just go and check, the descriptive ones. So that's comprehensiveness. Viability is, is the suggestion sensible and implementable? That's really where the expertise comes in um, to answer that question. But we can also turn it into a classroom discussion. We can have everyone present their ideas of how to improve the same system and have a discussion about is this comprehensive? Is this viable? Is this effective? Effectiveness, effectiveness means is this suggested change likely to actually result in an improvement? So is it actually likely to increase the benefit or reduce the detriment? So not only is it viable, but is it also going to be effective? So all of these things that I've said can either be, we can give it a grade if we want based on expert opinion, but we can also make it into a debate in class, a structured moderated debate or just a classroom discussion. Um, you can certainly expand just this one, you know, 30 minute plus 20 minute presentation and discussion assignment. You can certainly expand it well beyond that. Uh, you could turn it into an entire semester if you wanted to, uh, which uh, I may or may not do in the future. You know, I have one last question. I'm interested for first year engineering uh, class instructors. So many things are changing around us. The problems get more complex and, you know, the world is so dynamic. So for students, first year engineers, that's their first opportunity to get introduced to engineering and uh, kind of their first experience. Uh, do you think that our learning objectives should shift somehow or there are one or two, a couple of the objectives that we really, really need to pay attention to and make sure that students walk away with them, that maybe something is not on everybody's radar right now, besides the obvious conceptual understanding, etc. I will say one thing that's just general, I guess, um, to engineering education or education in general, and one thing that's specific to systems thinking mm -hmm. in engineering. So generally, and this is nothing new, we need to shift from knowledge to skills. And it doesn't mean the knowledge isn't important, but it's not as important as our investment shows. Uh, if you're looking at the time that students spend in more passive forms of learning, where they are picking up uh, some domain general skills uh, and some STEM-specific skills, but very much lectures and recitations, I think that generally speaking, we could say still, not in every place in the world, but uh, still there's more time spent on that, spent on that, uh, than we should, and less time spent on, again, project work, teamwork, and so forth. As, and this is a general statement. Um, but more specifically with systems thinking, I think that we do need to start teaching systems thinking in a formalized way, in an explicit way, which means we are telling the instructors and the students that this is what we're teaching them. We're telling them what it is. We're telling them why it's important. We're uh, teaching them how to assess it. Uh, we're creating different assignments. I think it's very important to expand the teaching of systems thinking in the early years, because as you just said, the world is becoming more complex. Systems thinking is becoming more important. And we are teaching systems thinking in many um, opportunities, but we're not always explicit and formal about it. And systems thinking, unlike many other ways of thinking, is something that many people are not really aware of. So I always do this uh, in the first class of my first year. I ask students, how many of you have heard the term creative thinking and think it, you know what it means? And most of them put their hand up. Same with analytical thinking. Same with a whole other bunch of thinking. But when I ask about systems thinking, two or three put their hand up. And the answers they give me are usually not really on point, and I don't blame them. Because systems thinking, even though it's very important, it's something that, at least explicitly, we are not taught at school, not usually. And even if we are, it's not very frequent. And even in undergraduate education, it's not as common as some other forms of thinking. And I really think that the most important thing is actually saying that, saying systems thinking, 
and really trying to have a discussion about what the systems thinking means and how can we teach it and how can we assess it. So whether people use my framework or another framework is less important. I think what's important is to have more of a discourse and take a step back maybe and not think that we necessarily all understand the same thing when we say systems thinking because I found that again due to all the reasons I explained before I described before I think the meaning of what systems thinking is is very different for different people even within the same discipline sometimes so I think that's just needs to be more of a discussion is what I would say and um, we should put some more effort into trying to bring it down to a level where we can teach it to somebody who had just finished high school because it is becoming more important to not wait for the upper classes or for the graduate or for the professional setting to begin to figure out that, oh, I can't just focus on the coding aspect or on the mechanical aspect or in the electromechanical aspect or the thermodynamic aspect. I do need to think about the people who are going to be using this or the people who are going to be affected by it. And even if I don't need to think about it, someone on my team or my manager or one of my clients is going to have to think about it. So I need to be able to understand their point of view. Thank you, Rhea. Thank you so much. Thank this you was so quite an interesting conversation yeah. and I'm sure our listeners will have a lot of um, useful insights from the things you shared today. So thank you for sharing with us. Yes, thank you for talking to us. Absolutely. My pleasure. Thank you so much, Natasha and Nicole, for inviting me and I wish you all the best. Thank you. Thank you.